0: Father, once again, we come to your revelation that you have history for our edification, that you have given to the human race, particularly given to believers in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. And we pray tonight that the Holy Spirit, the author of the text, and also the regenerator of hearts, uh, would open our hearts and enlighten our understanding and illuminate us to the great truths of who you are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's been a uh, week or two, so let me uh, just review for a few minutes uh, some basics leading into tonight's lesson. Tonight's lesson is a very critical lesson. It's tonight's lesson that we're going to get into the practical tools of that, that will greatly strengthen Christian, your Christian walk. Um, these are the tools that uh, set you up spiritually and strengthen you. And we've been six or seven lessons getting here. Now let me review why we've taken six or seven lessons to get here tonight. Whenever we... Look at Scripture, think about it, pray about it, apply it by faith in our lives. We have to do so in such a way that we don't undermine the very Scripture we're trying to live by. And I mentioned several times over the last few weeks how when Christians present often the case for Christianity, or they argue for the existence of God or some such thing, Um, We have a tendency as Christians down through the centuries to uh, shoot ourselves in the foot by the way we go about it. And in the last 100 years, uh, Christians have had to learn the hard way uh, about the world system out there, the unbelief that is out there, that constantly seduces us, constantly tries to get our eyes on everything else but Jesus Christ and the authority of Scripture. And so we have tried to, in some way, um, um, immunize you as we've worked our way up to this point. We're still talking about Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Still talking about the same event. But we tried to show you that there aren't a hundred answers to the question. There are only two answers and that we go back to that diagram which we passed out last time, and we've shown again and again, the fact that there is just two answer. There is either the creation uh, with a creator-creature distinction, uh, if I can find it here, or there is the uh, continuity of being idea that we have no God, and that what we talk about is simply all of, ex- all of reality existing by itself. We can talk about God and man in the same language. This, the word has the same meaning when it refers to God and the same meaning when it refers to man. Um, let me just go uh, spin that around once more t- one more time. What we're trying to do here because of the nature of the lesson tonight, we get attributes of God, is we don't want to do this. We don't want to give you the idea that the attributes of God are some impersonal qualities that are just there. That these attributes stand each by themselves as some sort of a a descriptor that can apply to God and man in the same way. The attributes of God aren't that. The attributes of God are truly attributes of the Creator, not attributes of anything else. There are similarities between certain qualities in us and qualities in God. Similarities, but not identities. And so we always want to make the creator-creature distinction clear. There's one thing we've learned in the last 100 to 200 years of church history is we better make this clear. And we mentioned last week... The fact that if you don't, you're going to get uh, shot down. Somebody, sometime, is going to say, well, the creator creature distinction really isn't that profound. You can say, for example, that the idea of three and the idea of one, that is the idea of number, applies to God in exactly the same way as it applies to the creature. And then once we do that, we can say that three isn't one, one isn't three. And so the the doctrine of the Trinity of the Bible is wrong. It's logically wrong. And this is what Jehovah's Witnesses do all the time. This is what Islam does. This is what the Mormons do. This is what every pseudo-biblical group of people do. They wind up trying to undermine the Christian faith by starting their argument in the wrong place, by smearing the creator creature distinction. Everything is just a continuity of being and not making the proper distinction. So, what we have tried to do in the last few weeks, is to, in your minds, get it very clear <clears throat> that when we talk of any quality, whether it's love, whether it's a space, whether it's time, whatever it is, <clears throat> that that quality, when it applies to God, <clears throat> applies to his character in a different way than it does when it's applied to the creature. There are similarities, obviously, or we couldn't talk about them but they're not identical. Now, let me also introduce an idea that some some talk about, and that is, you may hear the word, it's a big, long word, but it's used by certain theologians, that that say that, let's take the quality of knowledge. God, we're going to see tonight, has an attribute of omniscience. Down here, we have an attribute of knowledge. And... People like to say, "Well, the truth to God and truth to man are identical, or knowledge to God and knowledge to man are identical, and they, they, in other words, both God and man share under the same common quality." Well, the problem with that is that the moment you do, you have automatically made God part of the creation. You haven't you haven't separated them uh, enough, and What they try to say is that the knowledge of God is a projection in our understanding of our knowledge. So we have this idea of what knowledge means to us, and we kind of project it onto the character of God. And there's a word for that. Uh, It's called an anthropomorphism. This class may help you finish crossword puzzles. (laughs) An anthropomorphism, that is that the quality that is ascribed to God is a form that is analogous to man. Now that's true, but it will give you a false lead if you don't turn it around and reverse it immediately. If you just leave it at this point Then somebody can say, well, then really what you're saying is that you don't really know God. What you're saying is that just man's mind projecting a knowledge that we have onto God. And then that cuts you off from knowing God. So what you have to immediately do is to get this two-way conversation going. And so I've coined another word. It's just a gimmick to make this work. And that is a theomorphism. That is that God has so structured our minds, because we're made in His image, that the stuff we call knowledge is a form of His. So it works both ways. And if you just try it one way, you kill, you destroy the genuine revelation that God can make. God can reveal Himself truly to us because He made us in His image. We are theomorphisms of Him. That's what the word image means. That if God were to project himself down to finite levels, uh, finite dimension, he would look like us. That's why we have the form we do. Traditionally, what happens is that Christian theologians say the image of God only applies to the immaterial part of man. Well, it applies to both. Now, we don't have to be Mormons about this. What the Mormons do is they say the Father has a body, the Son has a body, and the Holy Spirit has something. And then we all kind of share the same thing. It's not what we're saying. We're saying there's a correspondence a deep and profound correspondence between not only our immaterial soul, but the way we are physically designed. In some way, this corresponds to the character of God, so that when God says, my, the arm of salvation shall save you, it's not a nonsense term. It means there's in his power, in his omnipotence, in his very being, that when he says, I exercise my strength, That is a very similar thing to what we do when we exercise our strength. And he's built us that way. Otherwise, we couldn't talk together. We could not carry on a historic conversation with the God of the universe if that were not the case. If we weren't theomorphic. So this is the basis for understanding God. This is the basis for knowing him. And this is also the refutation of the people who say, well, God couldn't reveal himself and so forth. Well, if you'll turn now in our notes tonight, we probably won't get through all these notes tonight, these attributes, because I want to take them slowly. Page 26, a delightful little excerpt from C.S. Lewis. So if you'll look at the fourth paragraph from the bottom, uh, you see who and what God is. The second paragraph under that begins with C.S. Lewis. Um, Those of you who are young parents or about to be young parents, may I suggest a book series for your children? That, that is exquisite, delightful, and you'll have hours of fun. C.S. Lewis's series. They're the Narnia Chronicles. Try to get those. They're, they even make them paperback books now, but they used to make them in hardback books. You had to go to order them from England, but The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first one that C.S. Lewis made. They're delightful stories, and you'll see Christian doctrine embedded in these stories. And C.S. Lewis was a master at doing this. And when asked why he did this, he had a very simple answer to why he wrote children's stories. He says, because adults are too defensive. He says, I always write, I I write in the children's story to come around and hit with what looks like an entertaining story. Find that adults love them. And because they look upon them as children's stories, so they let their defenses down and they suck it up. And once they sucked it up, all of a sudden they realize, whoops. There's some heavy Christian doctrine in these things. Well, the God picture, the Christ figure of all the Narnia Chronicles is a great lion called Aslan. And he has these neat conversations. And this is one of my favorite ones from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. A little girl, Lucy, is hears from the animals in Narnia that there's this big, big, powerful lion coming. And... The lion is going to change the land because the land is a land of winter without Christmas. The land has been cursed by a witch. And the only hope the people have in this land is a visit from Aslan. So Aslan's going to come and make things better. But the more she hears about all these animals looking forward to the coming of Aslan, the more little kind of spooky she gets because of the way they talk about him. So, that's why I say, when Lucy became aware she might meet the Christ figure, she worriedly asked Mr. Beaver whether he was safe. This is a classic C.S. Lewisism. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king. Now, in those three sentences, Lewis did a phenomenal thing. Let's diagram what he's doing there, just so we catch it. Lewis is dealing with exactly what we're dealing with. What he is trying to do is to say that you cannot have a situation of God, man, in this case Aslan and Mr. Beaver and Lucy down here, you can't have them sharing some understanding so that once man understands this whatever it is, it boxes God in and we got God under control. God is never brought under our control. Never. And that's what Lewis is protecting it. Aslan is not safe. What would Lucy mean by safe? It means that there's a, he's, got a, he's on a leash. You know, I can kind of walk up to him, and just in case he bites, there's a restraint on Aslan. And what the beaver is saying is, no, sorry, Lucy. There are no restraints on God. So he is not safe. He's not safe. All idols are safe. But the God of the Scripture is never safe, because we have no control over His power, we have no way to contravene His sovereign decrees, and we have no higher court of appeal of right and wrong other than His character. He is not a safe God. So our security rests not in a safety net that we construct. Your security as a believer doesn't depend on some great knowledge that we have that prevents God from doing something unpredictable. What does your security depend on? What does my security depend on a relationship with God? It depends upon His goodness, His graciousness, and His love, and His omnipotence. all rolled together, but it certainly does not depend on Him fitting into a little box that we have created so that we can... Whew, Uh, Heave a sigh of relief and know that at least here we're protected. There is no place that we're ever protected from God. The protection comes because of who and what he is. The protection does not come because of some external constraint upon God. So that's the point. Aslan is not safe, but he is good. Tremendous, there's there's a ground shift here in that whole point. Now we want to deal with some of the specific attributes of God, and I want to take you forward, before we do this, to the, to the lesson, So, if you, the, the exercise at the end of this section. So if you turn to page 29, I'm going to uh, make a point here. We're going to go, turn to, at the end tonight, depending on how many uh, attributes we go through. We're going to take a passage of Scripture, any passage of Scripture. Okay, it says certain things about God. What we're going to do is look and ask questions of that text of Scripture and see how many attributes of God we can find embedded in that text of Scripture. In other words, how much does that text of Scripture tell us about the nature of our Creator? And we're going to look for these characteristics. These are not the only characteristics of God. These are only a sample. If you want to really see characteristics people have thought about over the ages, uh, there's a a volume that a fellow Grinnell or somebody wrote in the 19th century, I believe. It's two volumes, but each one about that thick. And all it deals with is the attributes of God. So there's plenty more here than just these. These are just scratching the surface. All right, let's look then on page 26. We're going to start through what we call the incommunicable attributes of God. This is just a theologian's label, Don't get it upset you. I'm just trying to use it, though, because we're trying to separate. Some of these attributes are are harder to to comprehend than others because they're less similar to us. So the, the attributes of God that are not too similar to us are called incommunicable. The attributes that are more similar or most similar to us are called communicable. You can just kind of keep that distinction in mind. All right, let's see some of these incommunicable attributes of God. I've listed four of them, and we'll go through these four. First one is omnipresence. And let's turn there to Psalm uh, 139, verse 7. And when we look at these passages, don't just look at the attribute, but look at the context or the circumstances in which God revealed this aspect about himself. Why do you suppose that's necessary? Let's think about that, just that little observation. Somewhere, maybe in your notes, you want to write that down. That whenever you look for an attribute of God, look at the circumstances the person was in when God revealed this aspect about himself. Again, question. Why do you suppose that method of learning is important? Because it clues us as to when in our lives that attribute will be important to us. So, it makes it easy to apply the truth in our personal lives as in when we walk by faith when we see that we are in the same kind of situation that the biblical people were in when God showed them this part of his character. So that's just a little drill. Now that we not have obviously time tonight to go through all these verses, I just put them down, there's plenty more. But these are just a sample. In Psalm 139, uh, verse 7. Where can I go from thy spirit? And Where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I mend my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I take the winds of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me. How do you suppose, looking at verses 7, 8, and 9, you could contemporize that to the 20th century, thinking in terms of, uh, of uh, Star Trek or something? Anybody got a suggestion how you could uh, maybe universalize that? Psalm 139 a little bit more? If I take, if I go on a rocket trip into the next galaxy, is God the same? Is God holy there as much as He is here? Yes. So the omnipresence of God means that He is holy at every point. Now, that's, a, that's hard to describe. How can God be holy at every point? He's not half here and half there. He's all here and He's all there. He is infinitely present at every point. We don't get samples of part of His character. Now, we said that every one of these qualities, if you turn to page 27, every one of these attributes is mirrors or is the anchor for something in our lives that are parallel to that. We can locate ourselves in space by our imagination. Surely everyone in this room tonight, you can in your own head, visualize, maybe in your childhood, you can go back in time, you can go back in space, and you can relocate yourself. Don't do it too much or people think you're crazy, but um, you can have that power of imagination to alter your location, mentally to yourself. Well now God can instantly be everywhere. He always is everywhere. So our, our thing is a very impotent, weak, partial revelation of His omnipresence. Another area of thinking about this is space. Space is three-dimensional, which is interesting. It's not four-dimensional unless you want to get into modern cosmology. It's three-dimensional. And it's interesting, God has a triune nature also, so is space, so is time. Time is triunity. Space is triunity. And those are not just accidents. So, in space, we have a, a uh, finite version of God. Geometry is a study of spaces and volumes. And ultimately, geometry is derivative of the omnipresence of God. It's not the other way around. It's not that God uh, says, gee, I'm something utterly different. And so, uh, the nearest thing you creatures know about me is your idea of space, so, gee, that's nice, we'll make an illustration of my character from space. It's more powerful than that. It's rather that God has created space as a finite analog to his own omnipresence. God was everywhere present before the universe came into existence. That's why in one sense you can argue that it wasn't creation out of nothing, it was creation by God. So, omnipresence is something, and you can tell from Psalm 139, just look at the context, is a source of tremendous comfort. No matter where you are, you can never be separated from God, spatially. But what does separate us from God? It's not space. What separates us, God, is our relationship to him. When we're angry, or when he's angry at us, and we're not in speaking terms. If we're non-Christian, we haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, and aren't born again, we don't have a relationship based on righteousness with him. That separates us from God. So, what separates is ethical, not physical. You don't separate yourself from God by taking a trip. Even though you say, I want to get away from something. How many times have we all used that one? I want to get away from it. Get me out of here. But, because we need a relief. Get me out of here. But if you think about it, we can't get out of the universe. We just go from one place to the other place. We're still in the universe. And God is still omnipresent. So, he's as much here as he is anywhere else. Alright? There's a quote there I give you on the top of page 27 about how the Hindus approach it. We won't spend time there. It's pretty obvious. Um, Let's go to the second attribute. Omnipotence. Um, let's take an uh, example of omnipotence that's from the New Testament this time. Let's turn to Ephesians 3.20. I like to use the Old Testament because nobody uses it. Uh, the trouble with the New Testament sometimes is we're too familiar with it and we lose the, we don't, it doesn't smack us across the, the head about what we're looking at because we've looked at it so many times we don't come freshly to the text. But in Ephesians 3.20... This is a classic kind of use of God's uh, omnipotence. Paul is showing us, because he knows God is a God who is all-powerful, that makes Paul deal with his life and his circumstances a certain way. And here's an example of it. Here's, he's praying. And he says, now to him, Who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be glory and honor and so forth. Now there's complications there because the omnipotence is dealing with the indwelling Holy Spirit. We won't get into that. That's all heavy details of the New Testament. All we're looking at verse 20 right now is look at what it says he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think. That is omnipotence. All right, let's think about how omnipotence is made in some analogy with something around us. Omnipotence is the archetype of energy. What we call energy is a finite version of God's omnipotence. In science, you learn there's such a thing as a conservation of energy. Energy Energies need to create, destroy, change its form. First law of thermodynamics. But God's energy is not limited. See, it's like our concept of energy, but yet it's also different. Here's another way of putting it. God doesn't get tired. No fatigue. God does not have fatigue because he is boundlessly energetic. Now when do we want to rely on that? When we're tired. To know that our God, who promises to help us, to sustain us, to nourish us, doesn't get tired. So when we're exhausted, to be able to cast ourselves at his feet and say, Thank you, God, that you don't get tired. That you are energetic. That you are always full and brimful of energy. Not that we're going to be, but he is. And the important point is, is that because he is, now he is able to do what we ask beyond anything we ask or think he is able to carry out his promises if he weren't omnipotent look at it this way could we trust him or would you dare trust him with a finite god no Because he may love you, but if he's finite, he's like those gods we encountered in Enuma Elish. What was the problem in Enuma Elish? Remember I said you had a council of gods, the big god knocked off all the other gods, but you never could be sure that tomorrow another god wouldn't arise and knock him off. It's just a series of bullies, that's all you got. And a bully is only good until he meets one bigger than himself. So that's why the gods of the ancient world were never really trustworthy. And nobody, and the corollary to this, by the way, is no one in the ancient world developed a concept of history outside of Israel. Yeah, you can talk about Herodotus, but there's an answer to that we'll get later. But before the Greeks, there was no one that developed any idea of history. Why do you suppose that was so? Because there was no program to history. Because there was no lord of history who would write a pathway that we can study and say, oh, that's where history is going. So God is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. Many of these verses go, go along with this. Alright, come down to the third attribute. We come to the third one tonight, very important for studying the things of creation. The attribute of immutability. Now, let's me turn to um, uh, Malachi chapter three for this one. Probably the best of the three. Malachi. The last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Here again, rule, principle. When you study the attributes of God in a text of Scripture, look at the context always. What were the circumstances that were going on there? What why did God reveal this attribute and not another kind of attribute? What was it about the circumstances that to be blessed, to be benefited by this act of revelation, the believers were given this side of the character of God rather than that side? Why in this situation would he, uh, would he, would he reveal himself this way? Now, the attribute immutability means God is perfectly stable. Now notice what I did not say. I did not say that God is like a Greek statue who never moves. I did not say that God has this sort of Eastern religious uh, nirvana, undisturbed motive, and He never gets emotional. didn't say any of that, because the Bible doesn't say that. If you define immutability the wrong way, you've got a problem with the Scriptures. Why is that? Because you can look at texts like John, Genesis chapter 6. God says, I repent that I ever made man. What are we going to do with that? It's changing his mind. So you can't define it as the fact that God doesn't respond to history vigorously, emotionally, in anger. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about um, static, a static God. We're talking about God who is dynamic, involved, emotional, but his character is stable. And when he says he's going to do something that he really means he's going to do, he does it. And here in Malachi is an example. He's talking about the coming of Christ. He's talking about the, the, the judgments that are going to accompany this. And then he concludes in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 3, 4. Every time you see four, understand it's because there's a reason, there's a rationale of why this is going to happen. Why? Because I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, oh you sons of Jacob, you aren't consumed. If God had a changeable character, his promises again could be null and voided. Because tomorrow he might not want to fill them. So the promises of God depend upon His omnipresence. He's got to apply them at every point in the universe. The omnipotence, He has the energy to carry them out. His immutability that He will never ever change and He can be relied upon. Now, just to show you why you have to be careful with this attribute that you don't get a fuzzy and wrong view of God's character, turn to Exodus 32:12 all the way to the front of the Old Testament. Here's an example of one of those places in the Old Testament where God repents. It doesn't mean He's not immutable. Exodus 32, 12. Verse this, you, you, if you get to chapter 32 now just kind of look at the context verse 11 Moses entreated the Lord as God God is ticked off right at this point God is angry God is angry here and notice what he has just got through verse 10 saying let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and I will destroy them and I'll make you of you a great nation now, here's one of the great acts of history. Moses. Standing there. You know, if you've ever seen Cecil DeMille's attempt to, to supernaturalize the giving of the law. And you know, you see Charlton Heston duck in the fire. Like this. And writes the Ten Commandments on the wall. Just think about that. and what you do. If you were in this situation. And you have this awesome God. That's talking to you. And he booms down to you. I've seen this people, I am angry, get out of my way, I'm going to let them have it. Can you imagine the audacity to stand up to this fiery God and say, no. Now that's Moses. It's in a a fantastic chapter of history. I mean, somebody really wants to have high drama. Here's a scene that could be dramatized and tremendous, just lacking, just all you need is imagination as an actor or actress to do this. And Moses argues with him, and he says in verse 11, he entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak? Now, Moses is constructing an argument in his prayer. You know, Moses didn't say, Lord, whatever you want to do. That's not the kind of prayer that you see here. There's bargaining that's going on. That's why people say, on you know, Jews make good business people. because They've been bargaining with God for some of these centuries. They can easily bargain with anybody else. And here Moses is bargaining with God, and he's saying, God, there's a reason why you shouldn't do this. Your honor. Now, this is really clever. He says, if you go ahead and do what you're threatening to do, what about your glory? What are the Egyptians going to say? Then in clo- look at the end of verse 12. Turn from thy burning anger and change your mind or repent about doing harm to the people. Remember Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He remembers the covenant. And so, in verse 14, what do you read? So, what does it say? So, the Lord repented or the Lord changed his mind. Now, see, you've got to protect. When you start talking about God as immutable, you've got to allow for these passages. So, however, you talk about immutability, you're not erasing the fact that he interacts with history. And now, what you have here is one awesome revelation of prayer. We we glibly say, and and we have to be careful, so careful about this, because there's such a fine razor edge about this point. You know, you often hear it say, "Well, prayer in prayer, God doesn't change, but man does change," and and that's true 99% of the time. But what do you do about a prayer like this? I mean, is this just theater in verse 14, or did God was God affected by the petition that Moses prayed to him? seems to me like the only honest way of reading the text is that God is affected deeply and profoundly by the words that He hears from Moses. Can you imagine somebody in Islam doing this with Allah? You see, the, the, the biblical God is different here, profoundly different. and this is the pr- effect of prayer. This is one magnificent passage. but let's get returned now to immutability. How is immutability different from what we call natural law? Because one of the things we struggle with, in interpretation of, of creation and so on, is we're down here and we have what we call constants. And then we brought this up uh, one of our first lessons. We said, remember I wrote an equation on the board? I think it was y equals uh, ax plus b or something, a linear equation. And I said that you can't have any equation any mathematical relationship unless you have constants. And those are the two constants in the first degree equation. You've got to have something constant. You can't have a measurement without something constant. If I measure motion, I've got to have a a marker to measure the motion against. So, if I measure what a meter is, I've got to calibrate my instruments so that tomorrow a meter doesn't change. So I have to have constants in order to have knowledge, right? This is going to be critical, I'm I'm kind of looking forward to something here. Because this is something most people don't ever give a dime's worth of attention to and it's the easy answer to why the scriptures are saying what they're saying about creation. What we know in our everyday experience is that we can't have knowledge without a constant. So we build this edifice up. In science, we all have mathematical models. can't have science today without having some form of mathematical modeling. It's just implicit in the whole operation. But the mathematical modeling presupposes a constancy. I have engineers and scientists working on this all the time, programming computers, doing all kinds of things, working numerical analysis, all kinds of hairy ways of solving differential equations. And not once do they ever give a dime's worth of attention to the most obvious fact of what they're doing. They're relying on constants. Now, the problem that Scripture presents finite man with is this. That your constants will sometimes be interrupted. And that we can't have that. And that blows away the basis of all human knowledge. Now think about it for a minute. One of the most fundamental equations of all time is the equation for gravity. It's filled off F equals MA. You know, force equals mass times acceleration, or force equals mass times acceleration of gravity. And that's the equation. There's the constant. G. What happened to G when Peter wanted to go out and walk on the water? Where's G? Peter is walking. The Lord tells him to step off. Step off. And Peter's had a lot of acquaintance with G. Because all the time he's been growing up, he's been out on that lake. That's where his business was. It's interesting. Jesus asked people who were native to the lake to walk in the water. He didn't ask some landlocked guy to do it. He asked people who were fishermen to do it. The people most familiar with the Sea of Galilee. Those were the people he asked to walk on. Come on out here. Now, at that point, you've got a real problem, don't you? Feel the tension? All your life, your knowledge structure has been built on these constants. Then along comes the Lord, and he says, come here. I'm going to tell you to do something that cuts across every one of your constants. You got the guts to follow me or not? Oops. Now, think about the transaction that happens at this point. Visualize Peter. He's got all these born of experience. Here's all of his constants. There's one who calls him to step, step out of that boat. At the point that Peter takes the step, where has he relocated his constant? At that point, there's been a crucial transaction happen. What has he shifted? He has shifted to trusting the Lord, as more constant than his constants. At that point, a critical transaction occurred that is elementary particle of faith. That there's a giving away of finite baggage. And all of a sudden, you cast yourself into the hands of God. That's what that's all about. It's to break down the confidence of finite man in his own finite production and transfer his faith onto the character of God. And that's what promises are in Scripture. And it's a tremendous transaction. And as long as you believe that as an autonomous being, that the constant must be under your control, you will never, ever step out of the boat. You cannot step out of that boat without trusting the immutability of God as being more constant than your constants. That he is more stable than your elements of stability. That he is the archetype of really true stability. Okay, that's immutability. And notice something else that I mentioned. It's personal. It's not some sort of a constant in the physical sense. It's a constant of character. Alright, let's go on to the last of the incommunicable attributes on page 27. The attribute of eternality. I want to take you to John chapter 8 for a minute. John chapter 8, verse 56. What do we mean by God being eternal? All right, let's look at it this way. Um,. If creation of the universe happened at a point and this is, we can diagram the start, there's our diagram again, there's the creation, then God dwells in eternity. Eternity is the archetype and source of what we call time. We can only live one minute at a time or one second at a time, an instance of time. We can only experience eternity chunk by chunk by chunk. Because we are creatures of time. But the time that we experience is a creature analog to his eternality. Again, the power of your own imagination, because God has made you in his image... And there are certain things deep in your heart that correspond to His character. And in your imagination, can't you remember things that have gone on in your childhood? Ever run across particularly the sense of smell? Because for some reason, smell is more related to memory than some of our other sensors. And you walk in and you'll smell a smell that you haven't smelled since your childhood. And all of a sudden, you smell that smell and it suddenly brings back memories. And it's like you're there. You remember distinctly being there. It's almost like you're having a vision of being there. Or in a dream of being at another place in time. Well, God dwells simultaneously in all points of time. And here's one of those mystery passages where Jesus shows forth his deity. People always say, well, Jesus never called himself God. Well, I mean, come on. What do you do with this one? Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. The Jews said to him, You're not fifty years old. And have you seen Abraham? By the way, some scholars have pointed out, verse 57 tells you a little bit about what Jesus looked like. Because you notice that he wasn't any near fifty. Jesus was probably, this time, a little over thirty. And if they're saying not yet fifty, it suggests that he he was ageing under the stress of his ministry. Stress against sin, not stress against his sin, but stress against the world. But notice, they claim, look, you're only 50 years old, so here's your chunk of time, Jesus. 50. And then he comes out with this one, in verse 58. Now, look at the verb tenses. Look carefully, observe carefully here. Verse 58, John is loaded with these goodies. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, he doesn't say I was, he says I am. Now Abraham was born 2,000 years before Christ. And what Jesus says is Abraham saw his day and I exist in his day I am Jesus is unbound by the past, present and future strange this is part of the mystery remember we said we went into these attributes every one of them is ultimately incomprehensible we have analogies but we can't say that we know exactly what eternity is because we're creatures of time we're not creatures of eternity but in some way, God is ever-present. Now let's take some comfort in this. The quality of time, of course, that we know is analogous to His eternity. But let's, let's go to page uh, page 28 at the top. There's a little thing here that might help someday when you're rushed. Who, has, who hasn't had the experience of being forced to make a decision where you felt you were being bums-rushed to make this decision? don't have enough time to do it right, and I'm, I'm pushed by circumstances, and I've got to cho- choose. And so you always feel like you've been forced to do something quick. I hate that feeling. And I'm sure most of you do too. You just hate this idea of having to choose. I mean, you've got no other choice. You've got to make a choice. Now the, the thing to think about here is that if you were a creature, if you were the creator and you could dwell in eternity, you would have had all eternity to view that microsecond of the decision. In other words, if you took, you know, this time lapse, uh, not time lapse photography, but the other kind where you stretch things out in slow motion, uh, if you dwelled outside of time, you wouldn't be trapped by time into rushing from moment to moment. And God speaks from that vantage point. And that's why when he promises us things to trust him and he argues that this is right and this is wrong he does so with full knowledge of those hasty rapid moments where we jammed and compressed moving from one instant of time to the other. He is free of that and he speaks out of that eternal dwelling place. That's why the Bible says he dwells in eternity. He's not rushed. All right, let's pass on now to the communicable attributes. We're going to look, um, we'll try to take two more tonight on page 28 and we'll finish the rest of them uh, next next week. The one probably that's given more people more trouble over the history of the church than anyone else is sovereignty. And if you look carefully at um, the way I've... Uh, I'd like to just read what I put there in verse tw- on, uh, on page 28, uh, paragraph 5. The attribute of sovereignty means that God personally wills His own nature within the Trinity. Now, remember, each one of these attributes can also be looked at independently of the universe. In other words, here's God, here's the creation down here. We have already studied that He's omnipotent, that He's omnipresent, that he's immutable, he's eternal and now we're looking at the fact that he's sovereign. But these attributes have to be exercised and exercisable without the universe. Think about this for a minute. All the attributes of God have to be exercisable without having the universe around. Otherwise they're not eternal to his character. And otherwise he's dependent on the universe to show his attributes which is obviously wrong. This is why we're going to get to the attribute of love. Allah is a problem in Islamic theology. Muslim theology has classically had one area of tremendous weakness. They can't seem to ever reconcile Allah and his power of sovereignty and omnipotence with love. And the problem, why they have that problem, is real because Allah has no object for his love before he creates. So in some sense, a solitary God is dependent upon something outside of himself for an object for his love. The Trinity is not that way. The Trinity has the object of the loves inside of themselves because the Father forever loved the Son, the Son forever loved the Father, the Father forever loved the Holy Spirit and so forth. So they had a perfect closed circle, didn't need the universe around. And that's not true of a solitary God. So that's one of those features of the Christian faith that we always feel like we have to apologize for because we believe somehow God is three and God is one. It's precisely those features that make our faith true. It's precisely the denial of those features that get you in trouble. So, here, when we're talking about God as sovereign, it doesn't just mean that he's sovereign over the universe. It means that he always willed what he willed from eternity. He willed his own nature. His self-will is at once necessary because of his nature. It is also free because it is undetermined by anything outside of himself. So, please notice that sentence. It is necessary and it is free. It is necessary because he is a willing God. He is a God who exercises sovereignty. That's part of his nature. He wouldn't be God if he wasn't sovereign. But he's also free because it's not determined by anything outside of himself. Why is that important? Let me go back now. This is why I spent five or six weeks getting here. Remember in Enuma Elish, Remember we had that we went through that whole thing and remember I made a big deal about the council of the gods. Remember I said, gee, look at those gods and knocking one each other off and and so on and and then suddenly I remember I I mentioned there was a strange part in the text that said about the tablets of destiny and in those myths the gods in order to be the top guy on the block, he had to find the tablets of destiny, and the God who had the tablets of destiny was the guy that was leading. And then later on, and the Greeks come along and they develop the concept of fate. And I kept saying back then, weeks ago, I said, be careful, watch it here. Because the pagan mind, because it doesn't have a sovereign God, has got to come up with something to replace it. So what does this pagan mind and the fleshly mind come up with to replace sovereignty? It replaces it with either fate or chance. Both those are concepts. They look opposite, but they're all sovereignty substitutes. And they have to be there. We'll see that when we get into idolatry. These attributes we're going over, folks, are not options. The most gross unbeliever relies on these attributes in rebellion, and he relocates them, but he has them. Can't have knowledge without immutability got to have energy you've got to have space, and in sovereignty you've got to have choice. Now let me show you one of the hard passages of scripture proverbs sixteen four because when we look at these attributes again we could spend you know you could spend a lifetime on just looking at one of these things, but they're they're ultimately all incomprehensible that's why the Bible says, "My ways are not your ways, neither are your thoughts, my thoughts. but in proverbs sixteen four Notice this. It's unavoidable. It is a frank confession. And however we deal with the problem of evil, which is coming up when we deal with the event of the fall, in the the springtime. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. It's not Bible, it doesn't mince words. The Bible never compromises at this point. Is God, in the sense that He created the universe... The universe has a big fall in it, has a guy called Satan in it. Is that just an accident? Or is the universe here by design? It's here by design. That creates problems. Yes, I know that. Every Christian knows that, but you don't solve the problem by denying it. You've got to however we deal with that, we have to deal with it, not so as to destroy the sovereignty of God over all things. He works all things over the counsel of His will. We have to protect human responsibility, yes. But we can't do so as some people have tried to do and make man and God together as a sort of team that rule history. History is not run by a committee. It's run by a Lord. Now, what in our everyday experience corresponds to sovereignty when we chose? last part in that paragraph I wrote um, our experience of causation in everyday processes, something like his sovereignty except his causation is personal, not some impersonal process. In other words, we think of chemical processes, physical processes. Those are nice, but they don't really approximate too well his sovereignty because they're not personal. Our experience of authoritatively convincing someone else to do something is probably closer to his quality of sovereignty. But, caution. Caution. His sovereignty is not identical to the kind of necessity we observe in creature cause-effect. It cannot be modeled by a notion of physical law or a robotic system or any other determinism. Impersonal determinism is the only way the pagan mind can picture total control because it excludes in principle an infinite personal creator. In other words, when people seek to imagine in their heads how does this work out, they always want to invent a machine to do it because it's only the machine where you can see total control. We don't know what it is to be a person in total control because we're not in total control. So our images are lacking at this point. All we have is the word of God that says that I work all things after the counsel of my will. And it may be a grand chess game. And there may be move, counter move, a counter to the counter move, a counter to the counter to the counter move. All that goes on in history. But in the end, God's will shall prevail. And that's the kind of God we have with whom we have to deal. Finally, uh, we come to the last one which we probably shouldn't get to, the attribute of holiness. We'll deal with that uh, next time, the attribute of love on the next page and omniscience. But these attributes you want to uh, go at in a passage. Let's conclude tonight by taking a psalm. Uh, Let's take a psalm at random. Um, Let's go down, say, take... um, Oh, Psalm 16. Here's just a way to do that exercise. And I I really encourage you to do that because of just the training experience and looking for this in Scripture. This is a way you can have a feeding yourself from the text. Just look at uh, the first few verses of Psalm 16. We don't have time to do anything more than that. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee. I said to the Lord, Thou art my Lord, I have no good beside thee. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God be multiplied. So forth and so on. Now, just look at that passage. See if you can spot, just observe, just to yourself, what, does, what things does that tell you about God? Can you see any of the attributes in there? Unfortunately, there's some there we didn't cover tonight. But just look at, at, at uh, the first one. If there's not one stated, there's one implied. Okay? So sometimes God's attributes are stated clearly and others. You have to look at it and if, he, if you said, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee, can't you see there's a couple of attributes there that he's relying on? When he says, Preserve me, O God. Would it do any good for him to make that prayer to a God that was less than omnipotent? So isn't omnipotence that God is able to do that assumed by that prayer request? So isn't his prayer grounded on a faith in the omnipotence of God? For I take refuge in thee. You are my Lord. The word "Lord" speaks of a master and a sovereign. God is in control of the circumstances. So this is just a device to help squeeze out the truth from the text of Scripture when you read it. This is you know, hundreds of ways of studying the Bible, but this is just one way. And and basically, it's a way that you can develop to deal with circumstances in living. Because if you can see what the Bible tells us about our God and just remember some of these attributes, just a few of them, you could really go into any situation in life and reflect upon just one or two of these attributes to calm your soul down. Calm down your spirit to relax in the middle of the situation and just to be able to get your spiritual focus in gear to just think about what do I know about my God in this situation? All right, well, next week we'll continue with that and you should have the, hand- the handout that follows which is the handout on idolatry because we're going to show that what idolatry is. We always have a tendency to get into that which is denial of these attributes or relocating them. Father, we thank you for our time tonight and we thank you for who you are, that you delight in showing yourself powerful and majestic. And may we delight as those who have been redeemed through Christ. We seek to know you better. and May we reflect your character to those around us in how we live. In Christ's name, amen. Um, we'll just uh, throw it open here for some discussion or questions that you might have, things I didn't clarify, I'd like to uh, uh, have an opportunity to do that. So um, um, does anyone have any any kind of questions or uh, observations about what we talked about tonight? Yes. Uh, Good question, George. But let me... The question is, how is our knowledge a subset of God's knowledge is a very, very important question. And it's that question uh, that lies at the heart of a lot of apologetic difficulties. Also lies at the whole problem of of modern science and the Christian faith. And I'd like to handle that under omniscience. Okay. The only reason I ask is that it seems like the only line... Okay. Yeah, What we're talking about is that anthropomorphic line or the theomorphic line. Well, the reason why we use anthropomorphic is simply because in experience, in experience, uh, we will become conscious of certain things by the way our lives are lived because as creatures God made us to liberalize in certain ways so we have certain experiences and then these experiences we think about and we meditate and reflect and actually they become revelations of God's character. But we have, that's why I say the, the main one is the theomorphism because if those experiences aren't designed into history then they're not going to reveal God it's just that psychologically we become aware of God because of our experiences with this our experiences with that I mean how have we become experienced with God's omnipotence only when we get experienced with our lack of it and our fatigue and our tiredness and uh, it sets it off often. You know, we start thinking in terms of energy and so forth and so we we, um, we progress that way but But one is analogous to the other, and that's probably the safest way of saying it. Folks, That when we talk about the attributes of God, I can't emphasize this enough. Please be careful not to absolutize these attributes into qualities that are distinct from God. We are always, when we talk about sovereignty, when we talk about omnipotence, when we talk about omnipresence, discipline yourself to use these perhaps as adjectives and not nouns because uh, maybe that's a safer way of dealing with it because if you think of it as an adjective, an adjective has to modify a noun so that if you say sovereign, you think of the sovereign one. Because the word sovereign is the adjective and it has to modify a noun. And it kind of protects your mind against abstracting these qualities and making them like they're some sort of a... You know, this is a little H2O over here and this is NACL over here and we combine them and we get God. That's not what we want to do. These are not qualities that can be abstracted away from God. They're personal qualities. They're not ideals. That's where a philosophy of idealism is wrong because it has... Is, uh, idealize these qualities. Like, if you, you know, you, first thing you get in college usually, in the humanities class, you always have to go read through Plato. And first thing you know, you get in the middle of Plato's Republic, and now we're talking about the quality of the good. G, capital G, O-O-D. Well, hold it. There is no quality of the good. There's only a good God, who's the creator of all, from which we get our derivative idea of good. Plato, uh, in, his, in his dialogues at one point, I forgot the book of Plato, there's a very famous exchange that goes on, it goes somewhat like this, Plato asked the question, is something good because God says it is, or, or God does it, or is God good because he adheres to the ideal of goodness? And of course Plato argued that something is good because it, God, the gods and men both submit to this abstract quality. And, of course, that's exactly opposite of the Christian answer, is that that's not true at all, that the, the human ideal of good is just our thoughts and meditations uh, about the universe as been made by a good God. It goes the other way around. So our answer is something is good because God does it. God wills it. That's what makes it good. And that is terribly offensive. That is very offensive, deeply offensive to the autonomous intellect. Because the autonomous intellect, being autonomous, self, nomos, law, it wants to generate law itself. It doesn't want to be told anything. It wants to make the law. So when I say that all good that exists is just but a reflection of the goodness of God, suddenly that makes everything derivative. And we don't like being derivatives. We want to be the primaries. And God won't let us be primaries. We will always be derivatives. So, this is, is powerful stuff here because these attributes encompass every area of life. When you get done with the attributes, there are no other qualities that you can refer to. Everything you can think of by the way of a descriptor, any adjective, is, is, a, is, is a label for a derivative of God's character or a rejection of it after the fall. So, these are, these are uh, critical items in God, but most of all, they're useful to quiet your soul in time of crisis, of just going back to a safe haven to get away from all the noise, confusion, chaos, to just kind of come down and and just concentrate. God is sovereign. He works all things after the counsel of His will. And then you have all these noises in your soul. I mean, uh, have you ever had the experience of going to prayer and realizing how noisy your head is? I'm sure we've all had that. Now, sometimes our heads are so noisy that we literally can't concentrate on God more than three and a half seconds when another thought zips in. And then we concentrate for five more seconds, boom, another thought comes in. Where are all the stuff coming from that's going on in here? And the concentrating on the attributes, I find is helpful to me to just, calm down the soul noise that's going on and focus by focusing on these characteristics of our God so they worship they're items of worship too anything else that someone would like to bring up? I'm surprised we got by the sovereignty issue tonight so easily never have done that before <laughs> see Merv grinning back there <laughs> Ha, <laughs> When when we we won't be getting into uh, theodicy or or dealing with evil and, and defending God's character at this point because we are in creation. But it's a setup for it when we get there. And what you see, when God himself defends himself, you know, like the Job passage. Remember the evening we went through Job and God comes to Job. And Job's got the problem. I mean, man, this guy's got creamed. And isn't it striking that God doesn't offer an argument in his defense? Ultimately what he does, he keeps probing with question after question after question after question question until Job finally is just taken in by the character of God. Why does God do that? We don't know. But all I can preface it by saying is, that this is again a place where you have to ultimately go back to trusting his character. And one of the reasons why, and, and one of the things I hope to, as we go through this course more and more, is to convince all of you that the Bible is a very rational structure to it. There's, every piece counts. Every piece falls together. There's not pieces of the Bible against other pieces of the Bible, sort of a heterogeneous mass of marbles. The Bible fits very well together and one of the central, core truths of the Christian faith over against Islam or over against some other religion is that in Christianity what does God do that he doesn't do in any other religion? What is the central feature of the Christian faith that is absent in Judaism, it is absent in Islam, it is absent in all the Eastern religions because they don't even have a creator anyway. But even in these pseudo-biblical religions, God never incarnates himself and comes into contact himself with evil. Not the way Jesus, God incarnates himself in Jesus Christ and takes sin upon himself on the cross. See, this protects us about if we question, you know, when something horrible happens in our lives, um, innately we know God's sovereign. Why do men curse God? Think about it. You know people who have been in horrible things. A a child uh, dies a horrible death or a birth defect or something happens, a tragedy in a house. And what do people rail against? They don't rail against Baal. They, they, They curse God. Now if you think about it, if you didn't believe God's sovereign, why would you curse him? The very act of cursing is a confession that I really do believe. The problem is that I don't like what he did. So the problem isn't really the sovereignty of God here, it's the justice of God. Why is there not justice? How do you reconcile this with love? And that goes back to the fact that what what evidences in history do I have that God loves me? Well, I have the most titanic act, the most magnificent revelation that he loves me in the cross of Jesus Christ. So when I try to reason it through and say, gee, I wonder what he did in eternity past when he set this whole thing up. Did he, you know, he, he, he ordained all this to come to pass with all this suffering, with all this heartache. But think of it. He also ordained himself to take the heat. That was part of it. So you see, you can't take creation here, the Jesus here, the cross here, and separate them. They all fall, stand or fall together as a system the Christian system. There is a system to the scriptures. Not because we have made the system, because God's mind is a rational, systematic mind. And so the characteristics of a system come out. It's one of the most strengthening things about the faith we have in Jesus Christ. Is that everywhere you push it, it's got balance to it. If you get too heavy on the sovereignty of God, you've got the attributes of love and Christ's suffering over here. If you overemphasize the suffering of Christ over here, it becomes a cosmic accident and you you, you want to balance it because here's the mighty, greater, sovereign who designed it. So all this fits together. It's one of the great signals to us, the great evidences of the truthfulness of the Christian faith. The attribute of sovereignty is mimicked by something that happens in everybody's newspaper. Or when you go to the grocery store and you see uh, all the magazines for horoscopes. What's, what's the, why did people get this passionate interest and what sign were you born under? Why, why do people want that? Why do they call 900 number to find out what their little horoscope is of the day? Well, it's because they want to plan some reason in all this. The chunks and marbles of life have got to have a pattern to them. So they revert to looking for a pattern and they're looking for a sovereignty. Now, the same person that was going to object to you may, Oh, well, I can't believe in sovereignty and, and, and have human responsibility at the same time. Oh, really? Do you read horoscopes? Yeah. Or uh, horoscopes tell you what's going to happen? Yeah but then you respond to the horoscope don't you well yeah well why do you respond if the horoscope's right and it tells you what's going to happen just lie on your back let it happen see the same the same thing happens there so the, the sovereignty free will discussion carries over to everybody it's not just the Christian has the problem everybody has the problem so stop bugging me because I'm a Christian I got the problem you got it too okay anything else Okay, well, um, think on these things. And as we go further into the the, um, attributes of God, uh, next time I'll try to go through those. If you will, though, look at that exercise. I can't uh, encourage you enough on page 29, the bottom there, uh, of just trying it for yourself. And uh, the second exercise is list four bad circumstances you have faced. Write out how knowing and trusting uh, attribute X, Y, or Z would have made a difference in those circumstances. Okay, that's just a, a little discipline of just an elementary, simple exercise to grab hold of this—the power of what we're talking about here. This is very powerful material, very powerful, because this—it's the backbone of how God reveals Himself. So, okay.